This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. For those of you who have recently arrived, since the beginning of April, I've been giving a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. It is the Sutta on the four foundations or the four abidings of mindfulness. Talks have been based on quite an excellent book by a German monk, Venerable Analaya, called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. Last week, we discussed the first of six contemplations the Buddha taught with regard to the body, and that was mindfulness of breathing. He spoke of beginning this contemplation on breathing with the very simple awareness, when breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. When breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. That's like the simplest possible meditation instruction. Then the next step in the progression was to refine the attention a bit more and to notice with the in-breath whether it was a long one or a short one. Likewise with the out-breath, to know whether it's a long out-breath or a short out-breath. And then in the last two sections, there's two instructions on this section of breathing. The Buddha said to train the mind with both the in and out breath. First, with each breath, experiencing the whole body, and then with each breath, to calm the bodily formations. So we went into quite a bit of detail on this list last week. The section on mindfulness of breathing in the discourse is followed by a refrain that is repeated 13 different times in the sutta. It's repeated after each specific set of instructions the Buddha gives. So it seems safe to assume 
that by repeating it so often in the discourse, the Buddha was directing our attention over and over again to the most essential aspects of our practice. In the past, in past talks, we've looked in a lot of detail about each line of the refrain. But I want to read it again tonight as a reminder to you and looking to see how it applies to the breath and to all the exercises that follow. Okay, so with respect to the breath. In this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or one abides contemplating the body externally, or one abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, the nature of passing away in the body, the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So internal and external reminds us of the comprehensive nature of mindfulness that our practice is to be aware of whatever there is, whether it's within us or without us. And in the end, our practice leads us to go beyond this division of in and out. Now with the breath, mostly we take it to mean mindful of the breathing internally, that is our own breath. Still the instruction includes mindful of it externally as well. That is the breath of others, the in and out breath of others. I think it's worth pointing this out, particularly for those times when you're here in the hall and somebody's breathing seems loud or disturbing. And our usual reaction of mind is to get annoyed, to get judgmental, Don't they know what they're doing? But if we remember this instruction of the Buddha that we can actually be mindful of the breath externally, then we become aware of the other person's breath. Is it in? Is it out? Is it long? Is it short? Are their bodily formations calmed or not calmed? And so we use that very experience as the vehicle for our own awakening. It's all part of the instruction. And I think it's a helpful reminder to us. So in one sutta, the Buddha says, and again, he uses, in the suttas, he uses the pronoun he, because mostly he's been talking to monks. So when I'm reading the quotation, that's the pronoun I'll use, but please... Take it to be all-inclusive. As he dwells watching the body within, he becomes rightly concentrated, rightly settled. Being rightly concentrated thereon, rightly settled, 
with regard to the body of another without, he brings about knowledge and vision. It's a very direct statement about the possibility of developing insight with regard to the body, with regard to the breath, internally and externally. And then as the refrain goes on, with the breath, with regard to the breath, we become aware of its arising and its passing away. Clearly aware of its impermanent changing nature. Well, this is a very uh, striking and onward-leading instruction because it's the beginning of taking us from awareness of the content of experience to awareness of the process. That is, we go from giving emphasis to the specifics of what it is that's arising. As we're focusing on this aspect, we're giving more emphasis to the fact of its changing nature. We're keying into the changing nature. And this is really onward leading for liberation. And then in the refrain, the Buddha reiterates that we should be mindful of the breath just to the extent necessary for bare knowing and continuous mindfulness. Which leads us to the final instruction for all of our practice. And this is, we could consider the bottom line of our entire meditation practice. And one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world. So everything we do is to that end, abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So in the next section of the sutta, the Buddha expands the scope of mindfulness of the body from mindfulness of breathing to mindfulness of body postures. Again, this is quoting from the sutta. Again, monks, bhikkhus, and just as a a footnote, bhikkhus in, uh, is traditionally translated as monk, Uh, bhikkhuni is nun, but In the commentaries, it's said that anyone who is practicing meditation is a bhikkhu. So there's there's that other meaning of the word. And so in this sense, we are all bhikkhus and we're all receiving this instruction. So again, bhikkhus, when walking, he knows I am walking. When standing, he knows I am standing. When sitting, he knows I am sitting. When lying down, he knows I am lying down. Well, he knows accordingly, however his body is disposed. When walking, know I am walking. There is a great power in the simplicity of this practice because it grounds us in the awareness of the body and helps keep us from being carried away over and over again, as is the mind's want, in distracting thoughts and ideas. 
the simplicity of this instruction belies its profundity. My first teacher, Munindraji, used to say, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. Or if you walk and know you're walking, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. So how does this happen? How is the whole Dharma revealed through this mindfulness of posture? It happens in many different ways. First, the mindfulness of body posture helps strengthen the continuity of our awareness. Just watching as we move through the day from one posture to another. Now this is not complicated and we don't have to be in a particularly heightened state of concentration. And we can do this as easily off retreat as on retreat. That's the power of this instruction. Just being mindful of our posture as it changes throughout the day. It's like we don't have to be in meditation graduate school to be awake. It's really simple. You know, and in the Buddha's time, as most of you know, there were many seven-year-old arhans. And you think, well, why? How did, how did a seven-year-old you know, become an arhan, become fully enlightened? And sometimes I think it's because they were able to follow the simplest of instructions. You know, our minds have gotten so complicated, we can't believe that it's that simple. Sit and know you're sitting. And the whole of the Dharma is revealed. Okay, so it provides a vehicle for continuity of mindfulness through the day. Mindfulness of postures and seeing how they manifest, how they're showing themselves, also reveals a lot about our mind states just as a few examples, as we're walking. Are we sometimes aware of that feeling of rushing? And rushing really doesn't have anything to do with speed. Sometimes we're rushing moving quickly, but it's possible to be rushing creeping along. And I've had this experience often, you know, on retreat, I can be doing slow walking meditation, six-part walking, really microscopic, the lunch bell rings, and I'm still doing my six-part walking, but I can feel my whole energy body leaning forward into getting to the dining room. You know, so it's just this very subtle, rushing is just this very subtle toppling forward anticipating, having some wanting in the mind, some expectation, as opposed to simply being settled back in the moment with just what there is, not toppling forward. Some of you may know the uh, teacher Narayan. Uh, 
She's a teacher at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And she wrote and drew this very lovely little Dharma book. It's about, I don't know, two inches by two inches. It's a very small book filled with drawings, nice drawings that she made. And on each page, there's just maybe a few words of uh, caption. And most of the words are like this. When walking, just walk. When eating, just eat. When standing, just stand. When lying, just lie. And so the book goes through a whole range of daily activities. Well, when I read that, it was just, the phrase just stuck in my mind. It was so nicely done. Often in the walking meditation, that phrase will come to mind. When walking, just walk. And it's amazing how often just that phrase disentangles my mind from something extra that my mind is doing. It might be a kind of rushing. It might be kind of over-investigation, you know, a looking for something. It might be uh, in anticipation, you know, of the next step. When walking, just walk. So I recommend you just try that at times and see if it kind of cuts through anything extra that you're adding to the simplicity of this instruction. So how the posture is manifesting can reveal something about a state of our state of mind. When we're sitting, what is the sitting posture? Are we sitting straight or are we slumped? That will reveal very often a quality of our mind, whether we're wakeful, energetic, whether we're sleepy, filled with sloth and torpor. In standing, whether it's standing meditation or standing waiting in line for food? Are we standing impatiently? Is there restlessness? Or are we simply grounded in the posture? Grounded, rooted in the present, in a sense of ease. How when we're lying down? How is that posture manifest? Are we sprawled out you know, in some unseemly fashion? Or, as the Buddha suggested, are we resting in the lion posture? Resting on one side with one foot resting on the other. Lying with mindfulness. So mindfulness of our posture can reveal something to us about our state of mind. It also becomes the basis, this mindfulness of posture becomes the basis for overcoming unwholesome states of mind, even ones that are quite intense. Before the Buddha's enlightenment, while he was still a bodhisattva, this is the Buddha recalling that time in, in some of the discourses, he said that he would often go to remote jungles you know, in remote forests, as a way of coming face to face with fear, confronting the fear in his mind. Well, this is 
one of the things he said. And while I dwelt there, a wild animal would come up to me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves. I thought, what now, if this is the fear and dread coming? And I thought, why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I am in when it comes upon me? So when I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, and I neither stood nor sat nor lay down till I had subdued that. And while I stood, the fear and dread came upon me. And then I neither walked nor sat nor lay down until I had subdued it. While I sat, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor stood nor lay down till I had subdued it. And while I lay down, the fear and dread came upon me, so I neither walked nor stood nor sat till I had subdued that fear and dread. I particularly like this quotation, mostly because when I think of even the Bodhisattva having these intense states of mind come, you know, when the fear, when the wind rustles the trees or a branch falling, it sort of reassures me, you know, when I see fear arising in my own mind around some very simple things. But this emphasis on staying in the posture and being with that state and working through it in that very posture It reminded me of a couple of experiences I had. One before I knew anything about the Dharma and one afterwards, which revealed to me the power of this particular practice. Number once, I was in college. I was in New York. And I just had this idea that I wanted to sleep out in Central Park. Now, this, this was back in the 60s, so I think, I think it was marginally safer then. You know, this was quite a while ago, but it probably wasn't that safe. But I just had got this in my mind, so I took my sleeping bag, and you know, I went down to the park, and I found the space, and I just lay down, and I just, with every single sound, I became terrified, you know, that something untoward was going to happen and I couldn't stay I mean it was just it was just too much and so after I don't know how long maybe I made it half an hour you know I just I just went back home (laughs) not a good idea well years later this is after practice so at that time I had no idea I mean I had no idea of mindfulness I had no idea of really paying attention to my body and so I was just caught up in the fear and had to leave Years later, after I practiced quite a bit, I was on a camping trip with friends in Lassen National Park in California. We were out hiking and camping. And again, I decided, we were, we were quite a, a big group, so I'd, I wanted to just go off apart from the group, you know, and just sleep alone and just see what, what it was like you know, to be alone in the wilderness. So I, I went off, not, not with a tent or anything, just my sleeping bag, and found a place to sleep. 
And I'm lying there, and there are all these sounds, just like the Buddha described, you know. Not a peacock knocking off a branch, but wind in the trees, and animals were scurrying. And I could see the fear coming up in me. But by that time, I had really learned something about staying mindful of the body. And so I just lay there. And I was watching all this happening, staying grounded in the mindfulness of the body. And the fear came and went and came and went and came and went. And my mind actually came to some peace. And I slept fine. So it was just in seeing the contrast between those two experiences, the power of mindfulness, the power of having practiced being able to be grounded in our body, in our postures. It's very clear from the Buddha's account that purification of the mind is not limited (coughs) to sitting practice. We can face and see through all of these unwholesome mind states whenever and wherever they arise. It's as if we plant the flag of mindfulness in the stability of our body posture. And we can really stay firm in that awareness. This was expressed in a slightly different way, in kind of a somewhat more dramatic way, but I think it's basically the same uh, understanding. Uh, This was something uh, that was said by Georgia O'Keeffe, famous artist. She said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. And I just kind of appreciate the courage of that. Basically, even with fear arising, we can do what we want to do if we are grounded, if we are mindful of what's happening. So mindfulness of the posture becomes the vehicle for strengthening continuity of awareness. The way the postures are manifesting reveals things, reveals the state of our mind. It becomes the foundation or the place of stability for us to face and see through the unwholesome mind states. And this mindfulness of our postures, and again, it's very simple. When sitting, I know I'm sitting. When walking, I know I'm walking. When standing, I know I'm standing. When lying down, I know I'm lying down. This simplicity of awareness also becomes the doorway to the three characteristics that Miyoshin spoke about the other night. Now, impermanence is so obvious as we move from one posture to another throughout the day. And it's not only in the big shifts, it's not only when we go from sitting to standing, 
or from standing to lying down. We can also see the impermanence when we're mindful of our postures in the innumerable minute changes as we go from one posture to the next. So just as an exercise, if you are not already doing it, you you come into the hall and hopefully you're coming in mindfully. You come to your place. Be aware of the walking. Be aware of standing. And then see how carefully you can notice or note every movement that you make in going from standing to sitting. Instead of coming in and just kind of plopping down on one seat, you can really see and, and develop quite a distinct understanding and experience of impermanence just in that very, in that very uh, straightforward movement. Go from standing to sitting How does that happen? What are all the changes in posture that are needed to make that happen? Again, it's not complicated. It's just a question of slowing down a bit and paying careful attention. So mindfulness of the posture very very easily illuminates the truth of change. It also illuminates, in some very striking ways, the truth of dukkha, of suffering, of the unsatisfying nature of phenomena. And it's illuminated when we begin to investigate, bring the investigative mind to the question, why is it that we move? What is the motivation for our movements? When we pay attention carefully, we see that most of our movements are made in order to alleviate some discomfort or pain. That's really what's moving us through the day. The Buddha talked of how movement masks dukkha. We see it in, in many ways. We see it in the slight shifts of position we make when we're sitting. Why why do we make those movements? It's to alleviate or relieve some tension. We're feeling a little discomfort, and so we move. Or it may be a major shift of posture when the pain or discomfort becomes too unbearable. We can't be with it anymore. So there's a big shift then also to alleviate dukkha. When we go to eat, why are we going to eat? It's to alleviate the suffering, the discomfort of hunger. When we go to the bathroom, it's to alleviate discomfort. When we bathe, it's to alleviate some kind of discomfort. We lie down. You know, to alleviate the feeling of tiredness. But even then, okay, so we're lying down. And you know that moment, I I have it very often on retreat if I've been working hard, so to speak, and put in a good day's effort 
just that moment of getting into bed, uh, you know, it feels so good. Finally, you know, a place of ease. So we think, yeah, this is this posture is great. But after some time, the body needs to roll over. It needs to stretch because of some uh, discomfort. And after some hours of sleep, we need to stand up. We need to get out of bed because the body's getting stiff being in bed all that time. At one point, uh, I was in India, and I was just having a lot of pain and tension in my body at that time. And I was just sitting with that, you know, day after day. And I had this idea, I'm going to get this thick foam mattress and lie down with nothing crossed, you know, my legs out, my arms out, and just supported by this nice soft foam. So finally I'll just be able to meditate in comfort. So I did this. And I <laughs> got all of this together. Kind of lay down flat on my back. It didn't take long. I don't remember now. Maybe, maybe I had an hour, you know, of, of comfort. But just lying there in one position, the body started to feel uncomfortable again. Because this is the nature of the body. This is what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about understanding dukkha. But our movement keeps masking it. It's interesting to me of how often I and others would like to have the insight into dukkha without the dukkha. <laughs> you know, we all want to have kind of that insight and understanding. <laughs> but the real freedom is not, doesn't come from a theoretical understanding. It comes from really being with it and seeing it. Because that's what deconditions grasping. So again, this mindfulness of body posture, when we're looking in this way, why do we move? Pay attention to that. The truth of dukkha gets very clear. Mindfulness of the postures also deepens our insight into anatta, into selflessness. You know, as we're in the different postures, whether sitting or standing or walking or lying down, we might hold the unspoken question, well, who is, who is walking? Who is standing? Through a sustained mindfulness of posture, of just being mindful of the body in the different postures during the day, we begin to get insight into the impersonal nature of the body. There's an important stage of insight, and it's really one of the turning points. It's called purification of view. And it's the first real deep taste of selflessness. And this is the insight that we have through our practice, the insight into Nama Rupa. Now, Nama Rupa are the Pali words. Nama is mind and mental phenomena. Rupa is body. So this insight is when we see that 
in any moment, all that's happening is a process of knowing and an object. Just knowing and an object. So in this case, with a posture as the object, there's simply the awareness of standing, the standing of the body and the knowing of it. The sitting and the knowing of it. There's lying down and the knowing of it. We begin to see directly, not, not theoretically, but we really see for ourselves that this is all that is going on. That there's no one behind the process to whom it's happening. But rather, what we're calling self, what we're calling I, is simply this process, moment after moment, of knowing an object, knowing an object, this pairwise progression. Then this also leads us to see the conditionality of mind and body. Body moves because there's an intention in the mind. The intention to move, and then the body moves. A corpse doesn't go anyplace because there's no mind there, and so there's no intention. So yogis, meditators, often get or experience this insight into selflessness in walking Very often, both I've experienced myself in these ways and people have reported, you know, when you're walking and have the feeling of being walked. You know, or sometimes walking as if the movement is happening by itself. Or sometimes there's the walking and there's the feeling of being pushed or being propelled. And all of these are manifestations of the understanding or insight into selflessness. That the walking is only this play of nama-rupa. There's no one there doing anything. So it's a, it's a real turning point in our understanding and our deepening insight of anatta. Mindfulness of the postures also points to selflessness in another way. And this also is very simple and very um, incisive. Because it's possible in mindfulness of the different postures to experience directly the empty, open, groundless nature of awareness itself. So we use the posture as a way of realizing the empty nature of the mind. So for example, in the walking, it's helpful to frame the experience in the passive voice. And I'll explain what I mean. Because when we, when we frame it in the passive voice, we are taking the I out of it. So, for example, instead of I'm walking, walking is being known. Sitting is being known. 
standing is being known. Okay, so we're doing the walking meditation back and forth, and just to be in that experience, walking is being known. And it's being known spontaneously, it's being known effortlessly. There is no one there doing anything. The nature of the mind is awareness. And so when we're undistracted, we are simply there in the moment, walking, in the walking posture, in the sitting posture, whatever posture it is, walking, and the movement is known, spontaneously, effortlessly. And then we can take it one step further And again, hold the unspoken question, known by what? We're in the actual experience of it. We're not thinking about it. We are just in the experience of the movement being known. Known by what? So when we look for the what, there's nothing to find. And yet, the knowing, the cognizing is happening. So this is the great, this is the experience of this great mystery of consciousness, of awareness. There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. So we can read about this in books and, you know, all the different texts and whatever, but it's possible in the simplest way to experience this for ourselves. In the spirit of one dharma, I want to read something from a Tibetan text. Just pointing to this, and pointing to the importance of mindfulness. This is from a text called The Torch Which Dispels Darkness by Lama Mipam. The right way to investigate the nature of mind is not to perpetuate past thoughts nor invite the arising of future thoughts and to remain in the present in a balanced state. The mind should neither be distracted by outer objects nor excessively withdrawn in a state of apathy. Let the mind remain in a relaxed and open state. Just as a young child cannot be left on its own but needs the constant attention of his parents so he won't get lost, mindfulness is necessary so that the mind does not get lost in distraction. Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness. It is discursive mind. Mindfulness is not something that is acquired right away. Perseverance is needed. It is necessary to be mindful not only while resting in the state of meditative evenness, but that mindfulness needs to be kept in any circumstances, while eating, while walking, etc. It is important to be constantly alert and vigilant in watching the condition of the mind. So every posture whatever we're doing, can illuminate 
our understanding of the empty, open, non-clinging nature of awareness. The continuity of mindfulness, of postures, ensures the continuity of awareness of impermanence because we see our body postures are constantly changing. And this continuity of awareness of impermanence in turn frees us from any identification with the body or with anything else. And this is really the heart of freedom. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint of the last century, he said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. It's not a good idea. Alligator's not a good vehicle for crossing the river. Identification with the body is not a good vehicle for experiencing happiness or liberation. So through our mindfulness of the postures, through the changing nature of them, we begin to decondition this identification with the body. And we start living in the teaching that the Buddha gave to his son Rahula, which in some way sums up all of our practice. So this is the Buddha instructing his son. He said, you should see all phenomena with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. See all phenomena with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So these few phrases themselves contain a wealth of teaching. Understanding the body as not mine frees the mind from desire and grasping at it. We don't claim ownership of the body. Understanding the body as not I frees the mind from conceit. And conceit in the Buddhist usage means that sense or that feeling of I am, I was, I will be. And the endless comparing of this I am with others. So we see all phenomena, we see the body, we see the mind, not mine, not I, that is free from the conceit I am. And just as an experiment, you might make, uh, just to watch in the course of a day, how many thoughts you have regarding other people are rooted in this mind state of conceit, in this mind state of comparing one way or another. And it's quite remarkable. This is a very deeply conditioned pattern. Not mine, not I. 
see all, condi- all phenomena with wisdom, not mine, not I, not myself. Seeing it as not self is freedom from wrong view. That is the belief that there's an abiding self lurking somewhere in this mind-body process. So the purpose of our practice is to purify the mind of obstructive and unskillful mind states, which means those mind states which cause suffering. In, In the Buddha's words he said, to abandon covetousness for the world, to abandon ill will and hatred, and to abide with a mind compassionate for the welfare of all beings. So even though often we seem to privilege the sitting posture in our meditation, the work, this work of purification is clearly not limited to any one posture. from another sutta in the Middle Lent sayings where the Buddha says, bhikkhus, you should train thus. We will be devoted to wakefulness during the day while walking back and forth and sitting. We will purify our minds of obstructive states. In the first watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, we'll purify our minds of obstructive states. In the middle watch of the night, we will lie down on the right side in the lion's pose, with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and fully aware, after noting in our minds the time for rising. After rising in the third watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, we will purify our minds of obstructive states. I'm emphasizing this because it feels important to realize that this work of purification is in every posture, whatever we're doing. Now our teacher Deepama, who's this amazing woman and amazing yogi, when she was visiting IMS and teaching, uh, she lived in she was staying in that house across the street from the center, the little white house. Uh, and she was here with her daughter and her grandson and um, seeing, seeing yogis throughout the day. But whenever she had a free moment, it was amazing. We would see her just outside the house, just walking back and forth, doing walking meditation. It was like not wasting any time. It was just when there was a free moment, using the walking as the vehicle for mindfulness. There are many stories in the suttas of monks and nuns getting enlightened in all the different postures. One story which Munindraji, I think was his favorite story, I must have heard it 10,000 times. 
So this is number one for you. It's a story about Ananda, who was the Buddha's uh, cousin and devoted attendant. And he achieved the first stage of enlightened stream entry quite quickly. But then as all his monk buddies were getting fully enlightened, because he was uh, you know, busy with a lot of duties, he did not reach arhanship. Even in the Buddha's lifetime, even though he was present at all the teachings and he heard and it said he had perfect recall of all the teachings and he was this wonderful-hearted person. But the Buddha had assured him you know, that he has all the necessary paramis, all, he has what it takes. After the Buddha's death, I forget how many years afterwards, uh, they had a council to recite the teachings uh, you know, of all the discourses the Buddha had given. And it was the beginning, really, of the great oral tradition, preserving the teachings. And it was a council of 499 arhans, fully enlightened beings, but they needed Ananda there because he had been present at all the discourses and, as I said, had perfect recall of them. So all the monks got on his case, Ananda, you've got to get enlightened before the, before the big council meeting. So there's a little bit of pressure. It's the night before, you know, all these other great beings are there. So Ananda's doing walking meditation back and forth and back and forth. Remembering the Buddha's words that, you know, he has everything, uh, all, the, all the requirements, the prerequisites, but nothing was happening. You know, so then he kind of stopped for a moment. He said, well, what, what's out of balance here? And he said, you know, he, he saw, I'm making, I'm making too much effort. There's over-efforting here. I need to bring all the factors into balance. So he decided just to lie down, you know, for a little time. So it's said that as he went from walking very mindfully to his resting place, And just in the process of lying down, before his head hit the pillow and before his feet were on the bed, just in that intermediate pose, all the other stages of enlightenment happened, became an arhant, all the psychic powers came about spontaneously. And so he spent, so it's said, some time enjoying the bliss of his freedom. And then through his newly acquired magic powers, he just appeared spontaneously you know, in the group of Arhans, when the meeting began, kind of they all knew that Ananda had made it. So Manindra, <laughs> Manindra told this story very often, just to emphasize that even in the process of lying down, if not enlightened, if not Arhanship, deep insight can happen. We don't want to overlook or think any particular posture or activity, or think one is more important than the next. I say this because I know, in, I've seen it in myself, and I've seen it with yogis, there's very often in our minds, even though we give lip service to this, somehow we think that sitting is is where it's really at, or sitting is the important posture. 
Ajahn Shah said, some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. (laughs) Wisdom comes from being mindful at all times. So one of the great opportunities here, you know, practice at the Forest Refuge, where there's no schedule, you know, you're each kind of settling into your own rhythm. There's a great opportunity here to practice equalizing the importance of all postures, where you're not rushing through anything to get to a sitting or to get to the next activity, seeing that it's all the same mind-body process. It's exactly the same process that's going on, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing, whether we're walking, whether we're lying down. We can really make the day seamless. So this section on the postures, mindfulness of the postures, is also followed by the refrain, reminding us again of the important uh, features of how we practice this, contemplating the postures internally, our own, mindful of the postures externally, when we're seeing other people in various postures contemplating them internally, externally, both, contemplating the arising and passing away of the postures, just their changing nature, staying mindful of the postures to the extent necessary for bare knowing and continuous mindfulness, abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.